Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We're going to get back to talking about British politics today, from Blair to Johnson to Brexit and beyond. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more. The print magazine, the LRB app and unlimited access to that archive all for just £1 an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me forward slash talk. Today it is me and Helen. We're in a slightly different location, so there might be a bit of background noise. We apologise for that. We've been talking about Europe for the last few weeks, but British politics has been moving on. And we're going to cover a few things, starting with the speech that Tony Blair gave last week to celebrate the 120th birthday of the Labour Party. I believe the birthday is today, the day we're recording. It was a typical Tony Blair speech in that it was really annoying, and it was also quite interesting. And he said that the Labour Party needs to do three things if it's going to get back in the game. The one that got all the coverage was... It needs to not go down the cul-de-sac of identity politics. So we are not going to go down the cul-de-sac of talking about Tony Blair on identity politics. We're going to talk about the other two, which didn't get nearly as much coverage. So he said the other two things that Labour needs to do are get back into some kind of progressive liberal coalition. The Blair project has always been to some extent to reunite the Liberal Party and the Labour Party. And for our American listeners, we have to be clear here that liberal doesn't mean US liberal, it means the British Liberal Party. By chance yesterday, I bumped into someone in the street who happened to be listening to our Michael Ignatieff episode, an American, who stopped me and said, how can he call himself a liberal and he's not for Bernie? And I didn't know where to start except to say he's Canadian. Liberal means so many different things in different places. The liberal progressive alliance here does not mean Bernie. And then the other thing Blair said Labour needs to do, which people in Labour and indeed in social democratic parties around the Western world have been saying for about 20 years, is work out a plausible account of the future, which takes account of the fact that the nature of Labour is changing. We are entering the age digital automation and Labour needs a story about the future of work. And that means a new story about the economy, a new story about the nature of government. All of these things have to be completely reconfigured. And this was an implicit criticism of the leadership candidates, all of them, I think. They weren't looking for that progressive alliance, and they weren't telling a story about the future. Helen, (laughs) do you buy it? Well, I think that it depends which aspect of this that we're talking about. If we start with the first issue, Blair's sort of plea for there to be cooperation between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. So he did sort of attach some conditions in, to that in terms of the Liberal Democrats being serious. It wasn't just a plea for Labour, as he sees it, to be serious. 
I think, well, several things struck me about it. But the first is, is that Blair has always been, and he's not alone in this, obviously, but very keen on this language of being progressive. In some sense, that doesn't actually differentiate him from people much further to the left uh, within the Labour Party. And all of the leadership candidates are totally comfortable with the language of progressivism. It's just they don't like the joining up with the Liberal Democrats bit. I read read the speech again this morning, and it's pretty difficult to work out what Blair actually means by progressive. I mean, in some sense, I think that, which is quite common with him, is it means newness. Because it means the future is the other bit. It yeah, means it, having a vision of the future. He's always been in favour of something that's new against something that's old. I mean, that's sort of central to the whole idea of him presenting as new Labour. And he always, you know, in his heyday, liked to identify Labour with the future and the Conservatives with the with the past. But clearly, there are plenty of people who think that being progressive means a lot more than simply being in favour of what's new against what's old. And and Blair's not really interested in disentangling or giving any specific meaning really to his idea of what being progressive is but the second thing about that is is that it's really strange history I think that that he's telling because in his version of history that there's some sort of I think birth defect is the phrase that he uses it goes wrong right at the beginning because Labour and the Liberals should be the same party at the beginning of the the 20th century and that they they come apart and that this is the ongoing tragedy of the centre-left and progressive politics. And by implication, the reason why the Conservatives keep winning elections. Uh, Absolutely. apart from him, as he said, (laughs) no Labour leader, living Labour leader, has managed to. But you're really talking about such a a short period of time, I think, where you could say that there is this almost mythical Liberal-Labour cooperation, which is around the time when the Liberals are in power, when they won a landslide victory, with Labour's help or effectively the small Labour Party at the Times helped in 1906. I think there were about 40-odd seats where the Liberals don't stand in 1906. And then that is a reforming Liberal government that passes some of the early welfare state legislation. But that Liberal Party, I mean, you can say several things about it. First of all, it's it's going to come apart in the end, just like the previous version of Liberalism, uh, the Liberal Party did over... Home rule, it's going to come apart over the First World War. But you could also say that the two most consequential people in that Liberal government turn out to be Lloyd George, who in the end, when faced with a choice, is going to take his version of the Liberals into a coalition with the Conservatives that's going to outlast the First World War, and Winston Churchill, who's obviously not some emblem of progressive <laughs> progressive politics. So you've got a pretty small period of time in which you can say that this sort of mythical cooperation that Blair thinks is what is necessary actually existed and it doesn't last. It makes me think of the fact that many people in the Labour Party believe that that story has been repeated because Nick Clegg when given the choice also showed that he was more comfortable forming a government with the Conservatives than with the Labour Party and that as they say it betrayal will take a long time to unwind itself. I think Blair also thinks the other missed moment was 1997. There's always that story that's told about him that he was completely prepared in government with a sort of smallish majority to reach out to the Liberal Democrats. And then the British people selfishly gave him an absolutely massive majority and say the moment was passed. And I think he still believes that he missed a moment there. And then there's the question that I always think about when I read these things. So it's an alliance or it's a coalition, but what's the form of politics that will cement it? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Blair 
1987 made a very good case against proportional representation, which is one route to create it. One of the presiding stories of British politics is the idea there is this anti-Tory alliance, but it needs a different voting system to come to the fore. The other option is the 1906 one, I guess, which is deals between seats, across seats. We've just had an election that shows what an incredibly fragile thing that is. The frustration I have with the Blair account, and it connects to the other point about reimagining the economy for the digital age and reimagining what government would look like, it never reimagines the political system itself. It always has to be kind of passed through a very, very conventional account of what the goal of politics is, which is for political parties under this political system to win power. And we've got 100 plus years of history that's showing that doesn't work in the direction of these kinds of alliances. And yet he's not, there's nothing in there about how you would hold it together. Yeah, and I think you can also say is, is that what we've seen since the 1980s is, is that when you do get a period, and I'd say that that runs from 1992 actually through to probably to 2010, where you do get some tacit cooperation between Labour and Liberal Democrat voters, basically for tactical voting in ways that make it difficult for the Conservatives so that, I say it begins in 92 because you get a much reduced Conservative majority over pretty much the same share of the vote. In 1992, it's dependent on the Labour Party being led by somebody like Tony Blair. So if you get the conditions that have quite a lot of Liberal Democrat Labour cooperation, then you have a Labour Party that doesn't actually need the Liberal Democrats not to any considerable um, extent. As soon as you have an election like the ones in 2015 and in 2019, where you have very considerable scepticism from potential anti-Tory voters about the Labour leader, whether that's because they're significantly far to the left like Corbyn or because of the Scottish nationalist issue like in 2015 with Ed Miliband, you actually make it pretty difficult for quite a number of potential Liberal Democrat voters to vote Liberal Democrat because faced with the choice between that Labour leader and the Conservatives, they, they go with the Conservatives. And I think that, that that goes back to the fact that if you look at what happened then to the Liberal Party after the First World War, once it starts having these you know, like very heavy electoral defeats, if you look in the, in the 1920s when it makes some recovery particularly in 1929, it does so by taking votes away from the Conservatives and not by taking votes away from the Labour Party. So the idea that the Labour Party can compete for itself and then offer cooperation to Liberal voters, whether it be old Liberal voters or, or, or Liberal Democrat voters, ignores the fact that the Liberals and then the Liberal Democrats have got their own complicated relationship with the Conservative Party and indeed with potential Conservative voters. And then the other thing that's obviously true is that the great wedge in this mythical progressive liberal coalition was the one that Blair introduced by fighting the Iraq war. That's what broke it. So you said this period from 92 to 2010, but there is this huge dividing line in that period, which is 2003, which both reinvigorates the Liberal Democrats, but also creates this narrative that's still playing out in the Labour Party about betrayal and what went wrong. And it's another version of what you just said. It's kind of circular, sort of, had there been some kind of alliance, Blair wouldn't have been able to fight that war, which would have preserved the alliance. But there wasn't an alliance, which meant he, with his parliamentary majority, he could fight that war, which makes 
healing that rift much, much harder. And we're still not far enough on from that, I think, from any Liberal Democrats. And like you say, that bit of the Labour Party that considers Blair the enemy could ally with Liberal Democrats on their mutual hatred of the Iraq project. And that's not what Blair has in mind at all by Progressive. It is interesting, if you look at the, the history of this, is, is that foreign policy questions and questions of the union as well are ongoing features of the complicated relationship, not only between the Liberals and the Labour Party uh, historically, but between the Liberals and the Conservative Party as well. I mean, if you go back to, the, again, the, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, and you say, well, how do you get to a Liberal Party that is willing to offer that cooperation with Labour that it did in, in 1906? The necessary condition of that is is that a significant part of the Liberal Party has gone off to the Conservatives over the question of home rule. How do you then end up with somebody like Churchill in that radical um, Liberal government? It's because of the Conservatives' own then profound disagreements about the free trade question. How is it that the Liberals blow apart during the First World War? It's over the questions about how the war should be prosecuted. So actually fault lines around... Britain's external orientation to the rest of the world, as well as the multinational state that the United Kingdom is, is fairly fundamental questions that any of these coalitions have got to provide some kind of coherent answer to. You didn't mention the Greens, I don't think, did he, in the speech? No, I don't think so. So there is a possibility that what we're seeing is a shift in not just British but European politics. Again, it really depends on the electoral system. That there could be quite a swathe of younger voters for whom, if they were given a free choice many more would vote Green. And that must be part of this progressive alliance. And yet, the Green Party is much closer to the Corbyn wing of Labour. I mean, there's another possible rift opening up here on the progressive side. It is one of the reasons why I think Blair has a case you should be very careful if you're Labour about proportional representation, because you could open the door not to this Labour Lib Dem governing coalition for eternity, but a big Labour Green rift opening up. I mean, I think without addressing that, this still looks like it's it's either coming from 10, 15 years ago or it's it's wishful in the context of now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the problems that other centre-left parties are facing in, in Europe, take the, the German Social Democrats, for example, you know, a pretty significant part of their problem is the competition that now exists for the same kind of younger middle-class voters that they've relied on in the past now voting for the, the Green Party in that sense is that it looks like the German Social Democrats have been displaced as the second party in in German politics by the Greens. And at, at the moment, Labour doesn't have that problem of pretty significant competition to its Green left. It absolutely would, I think, under a system of proportional representation. On the other bit, just briefly, because it's too big to discuss at length, what it would be to reimagine an economy and a form of government that was suited to the middle part of the 21st century and wasn't a relic of the middle part of the 20th century. So centre-left politicians have been saying this for about 20 years, more or less, since they noticed that there was a digital revolution. They were going to have to come up with an account of the future which recognised the changing character of work, of labour, of sharing, of ownership, and so on. There's nothing in Blair's speech to flesh it out. I'm sure probably he could summon up some think tanks to come up with some ideas. But it still seems to me that the most interesting versions of those visions of the future are coming from the bit of the Labour Party he doesn't like. I mean, I think Paul Mason in post-capitalism has a much more interesting account of what a future 
economy and the future form of politics might look like. From Blair's point of view, the problem with it, I think, is not necessarily some of the core ideas, but it seems completely wishful about the basic politics of winning and holding power. But that then goes back to his earlier argument. I mean, it seems to me like he's going around in circles here. He wants both a conventional account of how a party like the party that he led governs with a majority, a very 20th century idea, and ideas that are suited for the middle of the 21st century. And I think you've, you've got, to, if you're going to do the second, you've got to give up on the first. I, mean, I think he's, if you're a Blairite, if you're a Blair follower, you have to accept that you can't have it both ways. You can't want it to be 1997 again with a philosophy suited for 2027. I think 2027, if it's new, is really new. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree entirely. I mean, I think this goes back in some sense to the way in which Blair fetishizes really newness. And uh, I think one of the things that was, to me, striking about the speech when he's talking about the future is is how he really frames that almost entirely in terms of technology. Quite Harold Wilson-y. It is isn't that, you know, the, the, the respect, you know, the white heat of the technological revolution. I can't entirely remember whether the word Brexit was entirely missing from the, the speech, but there wasn't any substantial discussion of it. I mean, that is a a future that has to now be worked out. You know, li- quite literally, the United Kingdom has, has ripped up its previous constitutional relationship with the European Union with profound consequences for its own constitution. It's about to change its economic relationship with the European Union and it's doing so in a completely different geopolitical world than the one in which Blair became Prime Minister. And these demands of the future... That's new. That is new, but this is not something that he's got anything to say about. Now, I think in part that is because in some sense this is the past coming back. It's the, the past constitution coming back. It's something about past geopolitical competition coming back. It's the question of basically having to reconsider fundamental trade relationships coming back. And and then not the kind of questions that Blair's mind, I think, is attracted to. He's attracted to the idea of, as I say, the radical transformation of the present by these you know, big forces that mean that nothing is ever like it was before. At the same time, though, as you say, being trapped in a narrative of, well, we can go back to me as Prime Minister and understand how I became the successful Prime Minister I have, that still has supposedly has guidance um, for the Labour Party, despite the fact that on this, the fundamental big future question for Britain, as Britain over the next you know like decade is, is how to reconfigure its, its place in the world and its domestic politics in relation to Brexit, Blair entirely bet on the wrong Outcome. I don't mean that in a sense of that he was wrong to want Britain to stay in the European Union, but he he gambled that he, in some sense, he could stop it. The, the political after forces it around yeah. after it after it happened, and he was utterly defeated. And now he doesn't seem to have anything to say about what the future political response of the Labour Party should be to this changed political world. Maybe I'm saying the same thing, but when I read the speech, it says a new kind of government and a new kind of economy. It doesn't say, I mean, it's not that kind of speech anyway, what the relationship is between the two. Does the new kind of economy generate new forms of government? Do new forms of government generate a new kind of economy? And my feeling is that he still assumes that government leads on this somehow, that 
you're somehow going to get a government that reconfigures the economy in a way that makes it fairer for the kind of people that Labour exists to protect. But it never explains how the two, and it's going to be a messy relationship, connect to each other. And I had the same thought as you, which is, no, Brexit is the thing that is actually driving a really fundamental question about how the economy relates to forms of government and how forms of government can or can't reconfigure the economy and in some senses can't I mean that's the other thing there has to be some skepticism here about whether you can just do it I mean it's it's fine to want to do it but is it really the case particularly in the digital age that government can reconfigure the economy but the test is not going to be Blair's test it's going to be Brexit and actually we're seeing it I mean there's a way to talk about the other side of British politics aren't we seeing a version of that argument being played out inside the Conservative Party right now, this question, let's not make it all about Cummings, but this question about whether government really can drive the reconfiguration of the economy, or whether government actually is at the mercy of forces it can't control, that basic realist question of politics. We're seeing it, we're going to learn some things about that, but it's not going to be Blair's lesson. No, I mean, there are clearly two aspects to these kind of dilemmas that the, the government, the Conservative government faces. The first is a, a domestic one because this Conservative leadership is, has taken the view, not least because of the electoral geography behind its electoral victory, that some fairly fundamental things about the way in which the British domestic economy works have got to change. They hope that they can use the power of the state to change the regional distributional outcomes that the way that the British economy has worked for the last at least the last 30 years if perhaps not longer and uh, that includes happened. pushing innovation north yeah. so it's not just redistribution it is it has a kind of blairish element to it which is if we are moving into this brave new world of the winners are going to be the people who are technologically most nimble. Let's do it out of the north of England. But it's also obviously a, a question in relation to, to British labour markets as well by ending freedom of movement in relation to uh, EU citizens and controlling who can come in in an economic sense to work in the British economy. But it's having to do this at the same time as reconfigurating Britain's economic position in the world. And these things can come into you know, obvious tension with each other. So if you say, well, what is it that the government wants? It would like, um, judging from the, the speeches at least that, that it makes, it would like a, a levelling up agenda at home, to use its terms. And it wants a, a global free trade agenda abroad. And the way in which this is supposed to work, in the long term at least, is, is that Britain's going to be, have a, a more adaptable economy and it is going to be able to offer some leadership on the trade questions um, but leaving aside all the difficulties of like what leveling up can mean in practice and what governments can and can't do about it is there's the problem that the world at the moment is moving in the opposite direction where trade is concerned is is that trade is becoming a much more geopolitical question there are much more charged geopolitical sensitivities around supply chains than there were five years ago, is that the American president has been engaged in a trade war effectively with China, is constantly threatening a trade war with the European Union. The British government is going to be simultaneously trying to negotiate a trade agreement with the European Union and a trade agreement with the United States. And all this has got to be made to supposedly complement 
each other without getting tangled up in the what say someone like Macron would say is the essential great power economic struggle going on between the United States and um, and China and these are the most you know immediate future questions and some of the things that Blair would say will determine the future like sort of global technology issues are the very ones that are actually being contested as part of this renewed trade politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you say that part of the goal is to make the British economy more adaptable, so it's fit for purpose in this world. So one version of economic adaptability is, yes, you restrict freedom of movement from people coming in from the outside, but you need people to move more internally. I mean, that's part of how an economy makes itself adaptable. That people, we talked to Esther Duflo about this, people are less sticky, but the economy itself, and that's always meant to be one of the stories about the US economy. It's probably a bit of a myth, but that people do move. If you're going to rebalance it in favour of the North, you're going to have to get people moving back to the North, aren't you? I mean, isn't that part of what this has to be about? Which, to me, suggests a really strong faith in the ability of governments to shape behaviour as well as economic outcomes. Isn't it quite an aggressive interventionist agenda? To get to the state of adaptability, don't you actually have to do a lot? And that then opens up the question of internal divisions in the Conservative Party, because there are lots of people for whom getting to the point where you count as adaptable requires the kind of state intervention that they're very, very uncomfortable with. They just want to let the economy kind of find its level. Yeah, I think there's the, there's a really interesting sort of tension here, which goes to the heart of what the Conservative government is or isn't trying to, to do. And that is, is, does it really think of the levelling up agenda as complementary to the external free trade adaptability agenda? Or does it think of it as a necessary safeguard for pursuing the adaptability free trade agenda? So is levelling up actually supposed to help in terms of trade adaptability? Or is it how you effectively provide some political stability at home while you're having to do things that, in other respects, are more aggressively pursuing a competitiveness agenda when it comes to trade. Now, I think, you know, at their most optimistic, they might think that the two things are complementary, but it's not difficult to see how that they run into considerable tension with each other. And partly that will come about because it's not clear yet how much political support there is in the broader Conservative par- Parliamentary Conservative Party for doing some of the things that the levelling up agenda might require. We're not in the business of trying to read the mind of Dominic Cummings, but I'm just going to guess. I think he believes that they are complementary. I think it's partly that mindset that thinks that somehow British politics and and British economic life has got trapped in the blob and the blob is centred in London and that there are these vested interests and there are these ignorant people who can't do super forecasting. And 
kind of breaking out of that, even physically relocating physicists to the north of England, does create a more dynamic society that will be better suited to this. But I suspect he's kind of alone in that or close to being alone in that. I don't think there's a huge constituency for that. It's quite a maverick position. And I think it's more likely that the party itself is, as you say, really divided on this question. And it's a, it's a deep division. I don't know, you might be able to explain this, I don't understand it, whether it cuts across the kind of Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak switch. I mean, there's a power struggle going on, number 10's control of the treasury, there's a battle between special advisors, but is there a philosophical dispute going on? Because the Conservative Party is philosophically potentially divided on the question about whether you're whether you're just doing this as a safeguard. You, you've won these seats and you've got to kind of keep them sweet, but you're basically in the agenda of free trade and potentially even deregulation, or whether you're actually, you genuinely believe that there is a philosophical justification for much more state intervention to create the kind of society as a conservative that you want. I mean, I don't know on the on the dispute between the, the differences between the, the present and the previous chancellor. There is a, a tension that's clearly there that sort of, in some sense, existed for the you know, entirety of the Conservative Party's existence is that on the one hand it has been a party that has people in it who are economically liberal and that's how that they understand what the purpose of being a conservative is and just because it's that word liberal again yeah. so just tell us well what i mean what is, you is, mean by liberal but what i mean by liberal is 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 that you know the state may need to do certain things in relation to economies but that that basically the state should largely stay out of economic life, or at least it should act in a minimal way in relation to economic um, life, and that they see the point of the, the Conservative Party in you know, defending property rights and all the things that make essentially market economies function as they see it in ways that bring about reasonable levels of prosperity. And you know they're willing to engage in economically ambitious policies. I mean, I say that George Osborne is this kind of conservative, and he was willing to to go down the Northern Powerhouse agenda, and that did involve in part, you know, using the power of the state to do to do certain things. But that's coexisted with, let's call it, Disraeli's Conservative Party, where the place of the nation has been more significant. The state has been seen in more positive terms that the point of the Conservative Party has in some sense been in its name to conserve certain things and that includes certain traditional forms of um, authority, traditions in relation to culture and I think that the manifestation of that in the present debate is in those who want to say actually we need to take place more seriously and that they would interpret then the victory in in the last general election as the assertion of these particular places that had previously been Labour looking to the Conservatives to articulate something of that in relation both to Brexit but also in relation to a a Labour Party that seemed to be indifferent to those kinds of concerns and the emotions that they that place generates. If you think of the the levelling up agenda in in more defensive terms if you like in terms of a defensive politics terms in sort of saying okay we've won these seats we need to hold on to we them. need to yeah and that we need to in our economic policies at home give those often towns a certain dignity back again 
that is one kind of direction that the Conservative Party can go. I don't think it's what necessarily though what Cummings is is interested in. As you say, I mean, I think I think he's would seem to be anyway more ambitious in thinking that the levelling up agenda can, as you say, be part of the external adaptability agenda and that there isn't necessarily this clash between the the two longer competing discourses within the Conservative Party is the way that I've been presenting it. But having said that, I mean, Cummings is not a Conservative. I mean, he's not got any particular history with the Conservative Party. That's obviously why quite a lot enough people in the Parliamentary Conservative Party aren't actually that keen on him. The person for whom that dilemma was most acute wasn't Johnson, it was Theresa May. I mean, Theresa May seems to me the politicians absolutely was kind of really strongly pulled in both directions, in one sense, as a conventional Thatcherite of some kind, and the sort of Nick Timothy version of Theresa May. And it kind of did destroy, I mean, lots of things destroyed her premiership, but she never really managed to resolve that. She didn't manage to square that circle. And there's always that question with Johnson that he can square the circle by not bothering about whether it is a challenge or not by just kind of as it were flitting one way or the other it was almost as though she took the dilemma more seriously than he did and that the the conservative politician who takes the dilemma seriously has really got a problem I mean at some point I think Johnson's going to have to face up to it it is the deep challenge and then Brexit and coronavirus and everything else can throw a government off track in a week and there are going to be things that will happen in the next six months never mind the next six years that make Johnson really have to face some serious risks. But he can't avoid the dilemma as you described it. No, I mean, I think that, you know, the Conservative Party is probably most successful when it finds some way of the tension coexisting. Both parts of its historical inheritance have got to have got to coexist um, with each other. I think what we can see, though, is, is that reconfigurating both Britain's internal economy and its internal politics and reconfiguring its external relations is going to strain the relationship between the different parts of the party you know pretty intensely and i think we've got to then add in which we haven't mentioned so far really either in relation to labor or the conservatives dilemmas it's all got to at the same time be played out whilst there's still a significant secessionist pressure within the united kingdom's politics immediately from scotland but also probably in the medium term, in relation to Northern Ireland too. Let's finish with the geopolitics of this. Touch on something that you said, and then we're going to talk about something that you said at more length in a lecture that you gave, and we're going to make that available to people who want to hear it too. So to connect back to the episode that we did on Macron, he is the most significant politician in Europe at the moment, and he's been talking tough on the negotiating phase, of the, the next negotiating phase of the Brexit deal. To what extent is this government's fortunes tied to the attitude that Macron takes? How much do you think, how much leverage has he got over the next six to nine months of the Brexit process? Could he really make it hard for Johnson? I mean, yes. I mean, I think that any, you know, anything to do with these negotiations can make can make things hard. And not only the direct negotiations between the British government and the EU over the the future relationship, but also how things are going to go in trying to negotiate a trade agreement with the United States. If you if you put so many things into play, as British politics has into play at the moment, there are going to be contingencies coming in from all directions that have got the ability to really cause huge problems for any government. Leaving Macron aside, at the moment there looks to be 
you know, a pretty severe disagreement between the EU and the British government about not the basic structure of the, the trade talks, but the starting places of them. I mean, they're going to start in you know radically different places from each other. That Johnson is, has made it clear that as far as he's concerned, that he's willing to put a significantly higher premium on, let's call it sovereignty, than on trying to achieve as frictionless trade as possible. From the point of view of the EU, it's clear that they are going to be pretty insistent on what they see as sticking to what they thought was agreed in the the political declaration, particularly in relation to level playing field issues. And they are not willing to say that, that Britain can have the same kind of trade agreement as the EU negotiated with Canada, for instance, because they say, look, you, you simply can't compare Britain as an economy in relation to the EU when it's you know sitting sort of 25 miles across the English Channel at its narrowest point with the EU's trading relationship with Canada. And for Macron, I think that it's particularly important that the EU isn't seen to make compromises economically with Britain, that the EU's credibility as the EU is defended. Now, in one sense, that's a bit paradoxical for Macron, because at the same time, he's the person who wants to say, look, the EU spends too much time thinking about itself in terms of the single market. And he said, I think it's in his Economist interview, too much time worrying about as if the EU's about, you know, like telecommunication operators. And he wants the EU to think in much more... Western civilization. Geopolitical terms from that. And you could say then the weakness of Macron's position here is is that, well, if the EU is going to think in much more geopolitical terms, then it needs to think geopolitically about its relationship with Britain rather than just think about it as a matter of the, the single market. But at the moment, contradiction is a position that Macron is holding. And it's going to you know, be even more difficult than it might otherwise be when the Johnson government has committed British credibility, or his government's anyways, um, credibility to having these trade talks done within a year. You gave a lecture a couple of weeks ago at Chatham House. We have a recording of it, which we're going to make available through our show notes. And it does connect up a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today, not just Europe and Brexit, but also Blair. Iraq bankrupted Blair's ambitions when he could not persuade the German Chancellor Gerhard Schröder and the French President Jacques Chirac to support the war. Blair wanted a common EU position on a Middle East issue when one was simply not available. Moreover, the Iraq war now illustrated how Middle Eastern discord could spread to divisions within the European Union about Russia. Jack Chirac could not contain his fury that those East European states that were about to join the EU sided with Washington over Paris, putting NATO and their Russian fears first. Without any realistic prospect that the EU could develop as a security confederation, Blair was back to the problem he inherited. If the EU were a partial economic federation and Britain could not join monetary union in the absence of democratic support, there were limits to British political influence inside the EU. One of the things that you do in that lecture is you you make a connection across, I think it's six sort of geopolitical dilemmas that have faced Britain and Europe both ways in their relationship preceding Britain joining the former European community right the way through to 
Britain already having left. So there's a feeling about the phase that's coming up that it's, in Blair's terms, it's new. And we were saying a lot of it is new, but there are also deep continuities. And there are, you describe in this lecture, and it's definitely worth listening to the whole lecture, geopolitical challenges that recur. And they're going to recur in this phase too. And it includes the relationship, not just between Britain and Europe, but both to the United States. Just give us a sense of what you think is not new about what's coming up. What connects this phase of the long-standing story of how Britain relates to the continent of Europe to these earlier versions? I think that um, one of the things that is you know, fundamentally different than the previous geopolitical predicaments is that China didn't really feature in the previous ones, and it now does. And it does because of the fact that China is part, not exclusively, but part of the lens by which the present American president, but I think in, on this, Trump is nowhere near as much of an outlier as he is on other matters, is reconsidering relations between the United States and the European Union and Europe more generally in relation to the European members of of NATO. So there is a long history of strained relationships between the United States and the EU over trade matters, over energy matters, and over NATO. Well, and then strained relations between the United States and, and NATO over these um, matters. And they've had consequences for Britain's dilemmas. But they haven't played out in a in a context where the United States is fretting about China as a potential long-term geopolitical rival. But as you say in the lecture, Britain is often caught in these European-US tensions. Britain's often pulled both ways. Britain mm. continues to be pulled both ways in this. Britain can't make a clean break from either. Isn't that the continuity? Isn't there, isn't there a story about Britain and Europe, which does see Britain torn in ways that other countries aren't? Uh, you know, this is a complicated question because of, in one sense the answer to that, that is yes and that, that the issues arise from the geopolitics. On the other I think is is that a significant part of the way in which Britain has ended up torn is, is because of the way in which the, if you like, let's call them the constitutional and the economic questions interact with that. And that in some sense what Britain's recurring dilemmas are have been about is is about like what weight to put on each of those considerations in working out what kind of relationship it can have with the European Union or its predecessors. And so I think that the continuity comes because the thing that Britain wanted before it joined the European community is the thing that it's now trying to have now, which is to negotiate a trade relationship, a largely free trade relationship with what was then the European Economic Community, what is now the European Union, and to do so without having to mix up any constitutional questions into that mix, i.e. do not get into a position where Britain's constitutional order has to be changed by having a free trade relation, essentially a free trade relationship with the European Union in whichever form that that takes. Now, it was because that was not proved impossible to do, that Macmillan tried to do that and, and failed to do that. And he wasn't able to use what he thought would be, if you like, 
the Trump card geopolitical leverage security that Britain ended up turning to membership. I mean, it's a bit more, it, the story is more complicated than that, but th- that's a, the gist of the the story there. Now it's trying to say, okay, we are s- stronger than we were. Whether that's true or not is another matter. But well, that's because we were in the EU is another matter <laughs> yeah. as well, anyway. Is, is, but that's where we are now and say, okay, we can try and do this again. We can try and say we can have our sovereignty. Or I thought you were going to say cake. But we really. can have our domestic constitutional order and we can try to negotiate a free trade relationship without having to make concessions, say, for example, in terms of the European Court of Justice's authority in relation to to certain issues. And the EU's position is essentially the same as it was, you know, like back in the, the 1950s and the early 1960s is, is, no, you can't. And part of the reason why you can't is, is because of your geography. You're too close to us. You're part, you are part of um, Europe and that we do trade relationships in Europe on our own political terms and you're not going to be any different. And using security as a bargaining tool is Absolutely. still a very high risk strategy. It is. And so the same thing is going to be tried again, which is to try and use security you know, as a, as a bargaining tool. Now, I think that the question then is, 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 well, is it going to be any more effective as a bargaining tool than it was when it failed as a bargaining tool. Now, there were clear differences. One of them is to do with the attitude of the United States in all this, which is much more supportive of European integration in the nineteen in the latter part of the 1950s than, than it is now. But you've also got another continuity, and that is the French attitude towards these security, geopolitical, economic trade-off questions, and that quite a lot of the things that Macron has been saying, particularly in the last year or so, have sounded increasingly like the things that de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle, the, the French president, was saying about the United States in the well throughout the 1960s. And after all, it was de Gaulle who said no to Britain's first and second application to join the European economic community. And you know, I'm sure that there's a part of Macron that quite likes the idea of sort of saying no to Britain having a trade agreement at the at the end of this year. But at the same time, I think that, you know, the geopolitical context, going back to the point that, you know, like I made earlier, is in many ways significantly less advantageous to Europe. And I don't just mean now, when I say Europe, I mean including Britain, than it was back in the 1960s. Now Britain has left the European Union, how can the Johnson government simultaneously construct new economic and security relationships with the EU? while stabilising Britain's own territorial union under secessionist pressure in at least Scotland. If we put this predicament into its geopolitical context, the possible contingency of the American relationship to Europe is, I would argue, now central. There is the risk that the American security guarantee to the EU via NATO is coming to an end. That would be a problem for Britain, regardless of Brexit. The British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, recently told the Sunday Times that the prospect of the US ending the security commitment keeps him awake at night. If you'd like to hear Helen's Chatham House lecture, the link to it will be in our show notes or on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Next week, if you would like to come to a live recording of Talking Politics, we are doing a morning after the night before following Super Tuesday on Super Wednesday at 8am. You probably need to get there a bit before that. You can come and hear Helen and me and Gary Gerstle 
chew over the results. It's at the Macrum Lecture Theatre, which is Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. We'll make all the details available in the show notes. You can sign up there. We've got some other exciting things coming up. We're going to be talking about super forecasting. We're going to be talking to Nate Silver from 538. We're going to be talking to Tom Watson about the future of labour. We're going to be talking to the novelist Anne Enright about storytelling, Ireland and politics too. Do join us for all of that in the coming weeks. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. We're going to be talking to Anne Enright, the novelist, about life itself. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think let's leave that. Should we leave that? <laughs> I suddenly thought, what are we going to be talking about?